For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. is a great way to build relationships. <laughs> People don't believe it. But a conflict is like a masterclass. You have to understand the other person's needs. You have to try and meet them halfway or partway. And then if things go wrong, you show that you care enough about the relationship to try to repair it. And all of that means that conflict can be a wonderful way to show that your relationship's strong enough to take a little rubbing up against each other. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success, and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoff, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. It's hard to get to the top and often harder and lonelier when you get there. What are the full set of tools we need to manage that journey and what helps us when we arrive? Today, I'm pleased to have Celine Teo, CEO coach based in Silicon Valley, join me to explore this topic. Celine grew up in Malaysia, worked in banking and strategy consulting with McKinsey and Retailer Gap in the States, did her bachelor's at the London School of Economics and MBA at Stanford Business School. She's got a strategic and business background, strategy and consulting, but as we'll see, believes soft, squishy people skills are most critical. I've invited Celine to discuss three important topics, influencing without authority, touchy-feely versus power, that's interesting, stay tuned for that, and coaching CEOs, her specialty and focus. Celine, welcome to 97% Effective. Hi, Michael. How are you? It's good to see you. It's great to have you on the show. And I want to open with a personal question. I know we know each other and not a lot of people know this, but you are or you were a registered lethal weapon, literally. Uh -huh. So this may not match people's first impression, but lethal weapon, can you say more about that? Happy to, Michael. It's actually overstating it. Yes, I'm registered as a lethal weapon in Singapore. It says absolutely nothing about how good I am at killing people. Anybody who studies in the martial arts in Singapore has to register. So when I was training in Thai kickboxing in Singapore while I was working there, I had to register. But you've taken away now the answer to the question, like, what's something interesting about you that we can't find on the internet? Well, it's out there now. 
And I think that's a fascinating uh, story. So you are very much and still involved in the martial arts. I love it. I'm actually hoping to get back in right now. I took a pause because I got concussed and I used to go all out and get hit in the head. And it was probably not very good for me. Okay, we'll leave that for another conversation. Let's hop right into your path. As I said in the introduction, you describe yourself as a strategy and business person with a lot of analytical roots. That drove you into banking, consulting, economics, and then business school. But in the process came to realize, and I'm using your words here, the squishy side, um, soft side was critical to your success, both kind of personal and being effective with clients. Can you say more about that realization? Yeah, I have a story about it, actually, that illustrates it. So I was actually working at Gap, and my role was in strategy. So the job was to actually analyze what was going on in the business, figure out the path forward, and then, you know, inform the business leaders and help them to implement new strategies going forward. So one day I walked into the office of the head of the men's business, which is actually a really big business for Gap, and told him, like, hey, look, look at this beautiful analysis that I've done. And it tells us we need to exit this business or, you know, reduce this product. Let's do it. And he looked at the numbers I and mean, he looked at me and he said, Celine, I don't like these numbers. Can I just ignore them? And he wasn't joking. He was serious. And I realized then that, you know, the analysis was watertight. The argument was fantastic. What I hadn't taken into account was that he cared deeply about the business. It was his product. He didn't want to let it go. And I hadn't taken care of the persuasion part of it, the emotional part of it, the negotiation part of it. And it was then that I realized, oh my goodness, that's this entire other side of the business that I, or just being effective, that I need to learn. Since you spent a lot of years in seat before you became a coach, you know, as a consultant, having to influence without authority, is there any effective technique that you might be able to share that, that can help people think about influence? Because a lot of people out there need to influence and they don't have authority. Anything useful that, that you might be able to, to come share with the audience? Yeah, I would say listen carefully for the need, empathize with it, and do so by catching small signals. So I have another story to tell. I was uh, running a training with a bunch of consultants who were hoping to increase their influence with clients. Um, and they were role-playing this exercise where, for example, one person is the client, say you, Michael, are the client, and I'm the consultant. And I am trying to get you to give me some data. And this is a very normal scenario as a consultant, but most consultants come in, they're like, hey, Michael, I need this data. Can you help me out? And Michael's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know you. I don't trust you. I give you the data and you're going to cut my job. So instead, what I had them do was come in and say, Michael, I'm new here. Tell me about yourself and about your job and let them talk for way longer than they thought necessary. And then the consultant repeated it back. And when they repeated it back, you know, before they repeated it back, the first time they ran the exercise, maybe about 30% of the consultants got what they wanted from the client. The next time when I had all of them just repeat it back, try to figure out what it was that Michael wanted, and then just empathize with it, show empathy, um, almost 100% of them got what they wanted from Michael. 
simply by listening and empathizing? It's listening specifically for the need. Because mm. people will say small things. You know, they'll say things like, oh, you know, I'm just so overwhelmed right now. It's, it's kind of tiring. And you're like, wow, tiring. Uh, that, so what's overwhelming? Like you're catching that. It's follow up on that. Right. Most people will just skip over it. Mm. So it's listening, following, probing. And I wanted to ask you this, too, because I know in your you know, path to becoming a coach, you also were certified in, in habit formation uh, there at Stanford. And so this where you were talking about consultants interacting with their clients is clearly not the, you know, the hard skill where you're building a financial model where there's clearly a right and wrong. Is this is simply like do it over and repeatedly with someone like Celine coaching you on how to listen? Or is there a way that you can, this catching small signals, build that into a really strong habit? Yeah, I like how you talk about building a strong habit. And I was training with uh, BJ Fogg at Stanford's uh, Behavior Design Lab in Tiny Habits, which is his technique for creating these small habits. So really, I think about it like um, building muscle. You've got to get the reps in, right? So uh, the way BJ talks about it is you have to have um, ABC, an anchor, a behavior, and then a celebration. So what you do is, for example, if you if I were to say I want to build a habit of catching these small signals about what people need, I would anchor it to something that's already in my normal flow of work, something that I do on a regular basis. An example might be when I click the Zoom button or join the Zoom meeting button. That would be my anchor. Then the behavior might be I will notice the needs of the first person I see on the screen. And then when I successfully do that, because that was the behavior, I will celebrate. I'll tell myself, hey, Celine, good job, pat on the back. And the more times I repeat that anchor behavior and celebration cycle, the more habitual it becomes. So it sounds like it's simple and then repeating it. Yes, it's simple, make it super small. An anchor in your regular routine, a really tiny behavior so that it's easy to do. And then what's crucial is having that positive emotion at the end of it to tell yourself, hey, good job. Yeah, that positive reinforcement loop. Yeah, positive reinforcement loop and then repeating it. Really, really helpful here. So we've, we've pulled out two very interesting pieces from your, your consulting years and then also how to kind of develop that and turn it into more of an ingrained habit. I, I also wanted to ask you, you know, from that career, and now you are a CEO coach, not everyone becomes a CEO coach, is to call out, I guess, kind of what's very obvious here, or, or may not be for those who aren't seeing this, but you're in a Malaysian woman, I'm half Chinese, you know, American. And I, I wanted to ask this because most of your corporate experience is in kind of Western U.S. corporate environments. We could pull up lots of data here, but the record on Asians, or let's, let's talk about East Asians here, rising in Western organizations to leadership levels isn't so great. Uh, but to paraphrase, like there's a good Ascend study, which says that Asians are the first hired, but they're the last promoted. While this could be a whole separate podcast, I, I want to ask you for any specific advice, whether that's your own personal path, 
or from coaching, I know you coach individuals also who are on that trajectory, on navigating what I'll call here, sometimes it's called the bamboo ceiling uh, that, you know, in Western organizations that kind of cuts off aspiring leaders from getting into the C-suite or even VP levels. Any advice or observations you want to call out? Yeah. Michael, I am so glad you're mentioning this because this is huge and a real passion of mine to get Asian intersect, just Asian women, Asians in general, uh, more broadly represented in the C-suite. And actually for other minorities to be more represented in the C-suite. So I think this topic is huge and so critical, and I'd love to continue talking with you about it. I'll say it happens a lot, right? Um, I see this happen all the time when Asian leaders that I coach actually bring something up, it gets ignored, someone else says it, and it's the best idea since sliced bread. They get less airtime, they get less acknowledgement, they get less promoted at every level of the organization. Uh, and what can you do? For women especially, it's not easy. I will be honest. There's a narrow bridge you have to walk between being assertive and um, being assertive enough to be recognized and just not being assertive enough. And then we fight against a stereotype around it. Uh, one thing I did see a coachee do that worked really, really well was she enlisted the help of other people at her level and she enlisted the help of uh, people kind of higher up on the uh, on the hierarchy. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, by enlisting the help of people around her, I mean, she would go into a meeting and then would make a point with other Asian leaders, other women, other minorities to support each other in the meeting. So if someone else said something, she would say, hey, you know, Michael just said this. I really, it sounds brilliant. So acknowledging Michael, calling out that the idea is fantastic, attaching the idea to Michael's name, and then saying, I would like to hear more. And then having other people chime in as well. Because then that becomes really hard for somebody else to bulldoze Michael or to ignore his idea or to say somebody else thought of it. And then the more they repeated that, the more it became the norm and the culture within that organization to, not, to, to let the uh, minority member speak and to have that idea take hold. Um, it's not enough, though, to ask for to ask to borrow power from people who are at the same level as you. Mm. And I think uh, I'm probably speaking your language now, Michael, and you're the expert <laughs> here. But she would also ask for power from people above her. Mm. So she would literally go to her mentor or somebody she trusted in the meeting who was who had more power than she did, and she would say, "Hey, during the meetings, I'm seeing this pattern happen where." I'll say something and I'm getting ignored. Can you back me up the next time you see this happen? Or can I look at you and yeah, can you back me up then? So she would actually strategically point, disclose it to people that she trusted and ask for explicitly ask for their help. She went really far. She would assert things and asserting, but assert them not for her own benefit, but for the benefit of the group. So she would say, I really want X to happen. And I want X to happen because it'll be so fantastic for our objectives for the quarter. It'll be so good for the morale of the team. It'll absolutely help with retention. So she would actually state these like really big um, pushes and they would 
not just be for her, they would be for the greater good of the group. And that got her a lot of goodwill, made her, you know, team player. And if that happened to benefit her at the same time, okay. These are two or three masterful pieces of advice, the enlisting allies, leaning on mentor sponsors, but also asserting things if it helps kind of for the group. But what I want to call out, and I liked a lot of what you said there was that can shift the kind of cultural norm in the group. Uh, because a lot of times it's, well, what does the individual need to do? And so while there are things individuals need to do, it is also how do you shift the culture, you know, kind of around you. Um, and so I like how that all works together. But this is, this is a fascinating topic. I'm going to put in the show notes um, some great research that came out of MIT, which is also interesting. You know, we're, we're here, we're talking about Asians. That study actually showed that East Asians were having more of a problem and South Asians were not in the U.S. And so I, I, I think that um, this does call out, you know, there's differences of groups and what might certain groups be doing um, and what research, aside from very strong anecdotal things that we see as coaches, uh, that's helping people navigate the here and now. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. So to to shift over what I alluded to at the beginning, uh, touchy-feely versus power. Um, So Celine, you and I have known each other for, for many years, going back to Stanford Business School. And we recently reunited as coaches together with our other amazing colleague who I, I want to call out, Anya Lee. Uh, we co-taught a course on influence and power uh, for the Schwartzman Scholars. Um, initially, that seemed like a weird idea. Uh, people publicly have maybe put us in, in very different groups. You alluded to kind of a, I more focus on power, which some people see as Machiavellian. You... Um, work in the Stanford Business School program on interpersonal dynamics, which is known as touchy-feely, around emotional intelligence. Our collaboration was a great experience, so I just wanted to call out a few nuggets um, from that. And to quickly give context for the audience, Celine facilitates in one of Stanford's most popular courses, Interpersonal Dynamics, also known as touchy-feely. It's a course focused on getting to know yourself, hone your emotional intelligence to become a better leader. I facilitate in Stanford's other most popular course, Power, taught by Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's been a guest on this podcast, which is about power navigating hard truths about organizational life. As I said, many people see these courses as very diametrically opposed. Interpersonal dynamics gets labeled as touchy-feely, new age, soft, and Power gets viewed as, let's turn people into Machiavelli to very much simplify this. And so we see students and many of the executives we coach actually struggle with these two views. Um, you know, is it you're going to be a hardcore Machiavellian asshole or you're going to be soft and, you know, gooey and uh, listening and singing Kumbaya? Of course, these are the stereotypes. And so, you know, we both believe at base, as we were talking about this, why do people think we're so different that so much is about influence? You need to understand context and be situationally appropriate and to be more effective leaders. You know, 
give people a wider toolbox. So why don't we co-teach this course on influence and see where the fault lines lie if there really are any. Um, and so just to call out here a couple of the things that we discovered, there was this united view that it's about influence and a wider set of tools. And then we got into a couple core areas, and I just want to call out a few of them. Hear some of your thoughts on here. One was around empathy, because um, we both agreed that you need to understand the perspective of others, because you're going to start working through others as a leader. Pretty much, you're not going to be doing it yourself. Can you say more about, you know, from your perspective, why empathy is important, or where, <laughs> particularly this is where we had our most productive conversation, where people sometimes misinterpret it or, or take it too far? Mm -hmm. uh, empathy is absolutely crucial, right? Um, you can't, you can't be an effective leader if you don't understand how the other person is feeling, what they need. Um, uh, you just can't. Now, the challenge is, uh, what happens if you take empathy too far? You run the risk of being ineffective or uh, destroying your position relative to the other person. So it's possible to be both empathetic and to think about what do I need to do here to be effective. Now, an example I like to think about is Marshall Goldsmith talks about a client of his, a coaching client of his, um, who was a cancer doctor. And when that cancer doctor was new in their job, they would come home every day and just cry. You know, it was horrible. Uh, this was a pediatric cancer doctor, by the way. So it's they'd go into the hospital and see children dying every day. It's horrific. It's really sad. And one day they just realized, I, I can't do this. You know, I, I, I'm not functioning. I'm not effective. I'm just letting myself be destroyed by the empathy I'm feeling for these children. So in order for me to show up and help them and be the best doctor I can be, I actually have to manage how far I'm going with the empathy. I need to draw my boundaries. And so that was one thing, just whether the doctor was effective. And the next piece was, if I go into the hospital and I'm crying or tearing up in front of these kids with you know, no hair, what are they going to think? They're going to feel bad. They're really young. They're going to think, oh, because I look this way, I make people cry. Because the, 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 they're going to they're gonna make that um, leap. And it's going to be inaccurate, but it's going to make the children feel bad. So is it for that reason too, for the other person, for essentially his uh, patient um, or their patient, they, they had to change uh, the way they were experiencing the empathy and how they were expressing it. Great example. And I, I'll just add here that, that sometimes even in my coaching, I rephrase it as, as perspective taking, which is kind of understanding, but and knowing a little bit what it's to walk in someone else's shoes, but to your point in your story, you don't have to sit there. Um, you'd want to listen and kind of know where they're coming from. And I would simply add from a power perspective that when we start to rise in an organization, we can often lose perspective. Um, and therefore, that certain amount of empathy of knowing what's going on is good to kind of keep you in check because power can sometimes isolate you become arrogant, you don't listen. And when you start to reduce what you're listening to, you can often make poor decisions or decisions without full information. Mm -hmm. And I'll bring back one thing, Michael, here, which is that as you rise in an organization, catching small signals becomes ever more important because people won't tell you the bad stuff. 
So you really do have to listen hard for when that little bit of feedback comes back. It's there's something big there. Yeah. And then noticing how you then engage further in that, because there will be a power dynamic going on where someone is likely or, you know, depending on that culture, to not share that information with you or to tell you things that you want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, this also brings up um, one other point, which is around vulnerability, which was a kind of big one that gets played up between our two areas. Um, and you showed in the course, and we were both very much bringing in research, that vulnerability deepens relationships and trust. I, on the other hand, and this was interesting when we put it in front of the students, showed that there's plenty of evidence that if you show too much vulnerability, to your point of this story with the kids, can make you look weak, undercut your authority, or in many cases, you don't get promoted because you're not seen as leadership material, assertive, the things we talked about just a minute ago with um, sometimes Asians may show. So we had a hard time on this initially, but what kind of tied the knot was to, to, to be aware, right, when vulnerability might be called for, when it would help. But I really liked, and I would love for you to talk about this idea of taking kind of a 15% risk, um, if that was the right expression. Can you share more about that idea? I think it's really valuable. Yeah. So the 15% rule comes from, you can find it from Carol Robin in her book, Connect, that she wrote about her experience designing and running the interpersonal dynamics course at Stanford. And I'm probably like uh, stating that wrongly, but she's like the godmother of touchy-feely at Stanford, who since left. Uh, so taking small 15% risks is the guidance that she gives for stepping outside your comfort zone. So if you can envision your comfort zone as a circle, if you stay there and don't not disclose anything, you don't learn anything and others don't learn anything about you. But if you go 100% all the way out of that circle, that's what she calls the danger zone, right? You're disclosing too much. You're risking, if, if that disclosure falls flat and you get rejected by people, that's really hurtful for you and you might shrink back into your comfort zone. Uh, you might damage your relationships with other people. They might have a reaction to you. It's 100% is too much. But what she recommends is stepping 15% outside your comfort zone because that's a small enough risk where you can learn something. You could deepen the relationship with the other person potentially. And if you fail, it's not that bad. So I use this often when I'm coaching leaders. Many leaders actually uh, feel extremely vulnerable, especially right now. I'm hearing a lot of people say, with the markets the way they are, I didn't make Q4, I'm not going to make the year, uh, and I'm feeling really upset about it. And part of me wants to really tell my team. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like you said, right, Michael, don't, don't say stuff that calls into question whether or not you can run this business or whether the business is going to survive, because that's just horrible for team morale. Um, so you want to be honest. But you also want to do a 15%. What's the 15%? And then we help figure that out. Mm. So that 15% where you're moving it a little bit and opening up, but you're not going overboard, which has the chance of having unintended consequences that we've mm -hmm. talked about. Yeah. Losing credibility. Um, like it's risky, right? Go 15%. See what works. And then the next time, your zone of comfort, your comfort zone has expanded to encompass maybe that previous 15%, and then you can try again, the next 15%. So it's baby steps. Yeah, baby steps. 
So I'd love to have a longer discussion about this. Um, but both of us, when we were talking about this, we work with a lot of you know, really well-intentioned, highly ethical people who, who, frankly, if we kind of put it bluntly, sometimes have a hard time with conflict, right? They, they want to be liked by a lot of people. Um, and as you rise, you have to make tough decisions. And that can be a hard place to be in, in a lot of organizations as a leader. Um, but I think in this, if I may say first, you know, that we, I feel like we exploded this kind of false di dichotomy that you can still be direct, assertive, agentic without being a jerk, inhumane, aggressive, you know, or unethical. At the same time, you can show vulnerability and that doesn't have to sink you. It's really about being situationally appropriate and understanding context. Um, and that these are tools that you're going to need at different stages of your journey. And, you know, how you use them toward, towards what end is, is really incumbent upon the client or, or so forth. Any last point you want to add on this, the touchy-feely versus power? Uh -huh. um, it's that conflict is a great way to build relationships. Mm. <laughs> People don't believe it. But conflict is like a masterclass. You have to understand the other person's needs. You have to try and meet them halfway or partway. And then if things go wrong, you show that you care enough about the relationship to try to repair it. And all of that means that conflict can be a wonderful way to show that your relationship's strong enough to take a little rubbing up against each other. Love it. Let's talk about, in our time left, you working now as a CEO coach. So coaching CEOs, different than coaching mid-level or rising, they are at the top. Of course, they very often have a board or other people they still report to. But say more about coaching CEOs. What is your role there? What makes you know coaching them unique yeah what makes coaching ceos unique is that i think the challenges at least the challenges that i see most often fall into three main buckets one is the isolation it's actually quite lonely to be a ceo and you don't get a lot of empathy for being in that position because everybody looks at you and thinks wow you're you know life's so great for you. You're heading up this insane organization. But really, it can be pretty lonely because, like you said, nobody wants to tell you the bad stuff. Nobody believes that you're having a hard time. If you are having a hard time, people are like, well, suck it up. You're the boss. It's difficult for you to disclose vulnerability because of the consequences it might have. Many of them crave just a safe space to be able to share their concerns and vulnerabilities. So that's one. The second thing that's big for them is usually the topic of balance and restoration <laughs> because, you know, they start a business, they're running a huge organization. And because it's grown so fast, many of the CEOs I coach are with startups, they've been used historically to taking care of lots of stuff. But over time, like no human being could possibly take care of all the things they need to take care of. So they have to start kind of shunting it off to other people. How do you do that? How do you take things off your plate? And then how do you actually put boundaries, draw boundaries around the work mm. so that they can fill their cup again? It's just very, very difficult because they're ambitious people. So that's another topic that I think is really big for CEOs. Another one that comes up very often is actually difficult conversations. So what we talked about, mm. and I'm not surprised because difficult conversations is difficult conversations either between themselves and their team. I want to give someone feedback, but I'm worried because of my position that that's going to land very heavily. And then that person's going to quit and I'm going to be in trouble because then I won't have a CTO. Or they might say there's conflict between members of my team. My product person and my finance person aren't talking to each other 
or they're in conflict. What do I do there? So managing other people's difficult conversations. <laughs> they're just worried it'll destroy relationships and they need help navigating it. And conflict is probably one of the more complex topics that we work with, right, Michael? Yeah. Those three parts, isolation, balance restoration, difficult conversations slash conflict. We talked about your corporate career. We talked about your tremendous work, interpersonal dynamics and developing as a coach coming from the consulting business world. What do you feel like you most bring to kind of those three areas or what's been the most useful thing helping you help CEOs on those three big areas? Yeah. I think what I bring is that I bring a combination of support and challenge. So I'm able to see the CEO as a person and this person has needs and the needs might be around just being vulnerable, being authentic, having a life. <laughs> and then I also see all of that CEO's team members as people too, that they have needs, that they're expressing through that conflict, bringing that ability to see people's emotions and needs as well as the reality check of, hey, you know, yes, feelings. And at the same time, we have to run a business yeah. and make yeah. money and perform. Yeah, the support and challenging. I know you do this extremely well. But, and I want to ask as we come to the end, not everyone becomes a CEO coach. I know you're part of an elite group. Do you want to comment at all on, you know, how you've kind of taken on, you know, CEOs or any other useful information as, as people kind of listen to this or think about reaching out to you? Yeah, you can reach me at www.mosharimethod.com. And I'm always open to having conversations with interesting people, especially if you're a CEO, founder, VC, reach out. Love to talk. Awesome. Any important question I did not ask here, Celine, that you want to answer or address? You covered it all, but would love to continue the conversation on like, just minorities and power in the workplace. Let's set that up for a conversation in the coming year and do a whole episode around that. I, I really want to explore that more with you. All right. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Celine. Thanks, Michael. Great talking with you. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.